Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the DrScore.com doctor rating website. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the contributions the pharmaceutical industry makes to patients' health, as well as the challenges of assuring that interactions between drug companies and healthcare providers are ethical. I'll tell you, the drugs we have today are awesome. Um, I started medical school in 1980, and the stuff we have now just didn't exist back then. We've, we've got better drugs. We've got drugs for diseases we didn't even know could be treated. We've got drugs to treat diseases that we didn't even know existed. We didn't even know the diseases existed in 1980. And who do we have to thank for this? Well, drug companies and a market economy. On today's show, we're going to be speaking with Lori Riley, Vice President for Policy and Research at Pharma, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. This organization represents the country's leading pharmaceutical research and biotechnology companies, companies that are investing money to help patients live longer, healthier, and more productive lives. Industry-wide, they report that research and investment uh, totaled over $65 billion in 2009. Lori, it's a pleasure having you on our show um, to speak to you about this very important topic. Well, thanks for having me. Can you tell our listeners what pharma is? Sure. Um, pharma, which stands for the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, is a trade association. We represent the brand name pharmaceutical industry on Capitol Hill here in Washington, D.C., as well as um, in the states across this country and internationally as well. So we are uh, the folks that, that travel to many state legislators and Capitol Hill and international governments and talk about the value that the pharmaceutical industry brings to um, patients all over the world. I get the sense that that is a voice that needs to be heard and gets lost sometimes in kind of negative calls. Um, let's talk about some things, something positive. What, what are sure. the contributions of the of pharmaceutical industry to patients' health? Well, I think that's a, that's a great question, a great place to start. I think we often, and, and I know myself do this as well, take for granted some of the contributions that this industry has made to improving the lives of people all over the world. Um, for many uh, people, we've helped kind of change the course of disease. Um, we're living in an era of tremendous scientific potential and fast-paced advances, which is, which is very exciting. And for many diseases, where before we had no previous treatment, 
we're identifying um, new sources of medications that are significantly helping people uh, manage their disease better and live longer lives. We've increased uh, survival time for many serious conditions, uh, for example, cancer and HIV-AIDS medications, which, you know, as I remember in the 90s, was certainly a death sentence for for individuals that were diagnosed with HIV-AIDS, and today it's become a chronic condition um, for many. Uh, When you look at, for example, cardiovascular disease, the death rate for cardiovascular disease has fallen about 26% just between 1999 and 2005, which is pretty significant in a short period of time, and it is in no short uh, part as a result of the many medications that are today available to help treat cardiovascular disease. I started and often, school oh, go in, ahead. <laughs> yeah, I started medical school in 1980. AIDS did not exist then. I remember when right. the CDC reports were coming out about infectious diseases that you normally didn't see coming up in clusters in homosexuals and mm-hmm. uh, then then AIDS is discovered and it just seems like in such a sh- incredibly short period of time maybe not to somebody who's suffering from it but just from mm-hmm. the objective observer that not only the definition of the disease the identification of the virus that causes it and then treatments that that can manage it just a phenomenal progress in an incredibly short period of time there must be something right about the way our system is set up that allowed that to happen. I think that's right. I think we we often take for granted here in the U.S., but the the entrepreneurial nature of of, um, how our industry is able to work um, and having a market where, you know, we have the opportunity to to get these drugs on the market in a quick, quick, you know, pretty quick fashion and then be able to earn back the, the research and development costs that it takes to get a new medicine to market. And, of course, here in the U.S., you know, we have a system where we, you know, a drug is on the market for a period of time, but then a generic um, is typically on the market in about 10 or 11 years after a drug has been approved, and the, the price falls out of the bottom of it, and patients get the benefit of having those medications, but a significantly reduced cost over time. It's 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 an amazing system, both in in the period where we have new drugs, and then in the period where we have those medicines go generic. I I ended up with a career in dermatology, mm-hmm. and I look at people with psoriasis. And back before I started dermatology, even when I was training, we had some topical cortisone medicines. And then we had Stone Age stuff like putting tar on people. We had, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, had I have psoriasis, so I can yeah. empathize. <laughs> yeah, we, we had an old chemotherapy drug, methotrexate, mm-hmm. and that was about it. You know, well, we could put right. people in lights, which is what they've been doing for people for roughly, you know, twenty five hundred years. Mm. And now, uh, I'd say over the last twenty years, we've had one brand new drug on average per year, and some of these are extraordinary molecules that are based, as you were saying, on the scientific uh, advances that have been made by understanding the immune system and how it works. We've got these new biologic medicines that have just revolutionized people's lives. Absolutely. Well, then these medicines go generic, as you said. The the price Mm -hmm. drops out. I'm on a drug for my cholesterol that did not exist when I was in medical school, Uh, and I probably pay a couple dollars for a three-month supply of it. It's just a, a remarkable it, thing. It's amazing. When you look at the generic share of the market in 2000, so just 10 years ago, was a little less than half, about 49%. Today it's up to 74%. 
um, of every drug that's sold today is a generic medicine, which is, is great for consumers. We're always cognizant of the fact that you need to have a balance because without, when it gets too skewed one way, you know, it's, um, it's hard to get a new drug on the market and it's hard to get people willing to, to pay the cost for a new drug. But for many people um, that don't have any other options, it really is the only option that, that may be available for them. Well, I like the way the system is set up so that there is a financial incentive to come up with something that really makes a difference for people and makes it worthwhile for them to spend the cost for that new therapy. Absolutely. Well, this entrepreneurial part of the system has its ups and downs. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) The drugs, at least in the United States, don't go directly to patients. There's a doctor in between. And, um, you know... People come to see their doctor. Their doctor can help them. Why? Because the doctor has the benefit of all these great new drugs. Some of these drugs cost money. And there's questions, ethical questions arise in the relationships between doctors and drug companies. Yeah. Um, since the, they're sort of this middleman between the patient and, and the drug company. And there potentially could be conflicts of interest um, if, for example, the physician is somehow benefiting from from the prescription to the patient in some way or is, has some financial incentive to give patients a higher-cost drug over another. This um, is an issue in, in the public eye today. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I think, you know, this industry has been particularly cognizant of, of a lot of those issues. And I would say we've we've gone to great lengths to try and um, ensure that our interactions with physicians and other healthcare professionals are very much above board and, and transparent. Um, in 2008, so just two years ago, we issued a revision to essentially a code of conduct Let's for our with... companies and how they engage with healthcare professionals. Great. Well, what was the, the, the code of conduct before you changed? And then let's hear what the changes were. Sure. Um, there were actually several different changes, and they range um, all across the spectrum. But I'm sure most people are, are most familiar with the fact of you could hardly go into your doctor's office without seeing a pen or an item that had a, a name of a drug on it. So these were kind of tchotchkes that, that sales reps often gave to their physicians um, previously. Um, those were acceptable under the pharma code, provided they were $100 or less. Um, and they were things like pens, pads, mugs, et cetera. Um, as a result of the 2008 code, um, our companies no longer offer such items. So the pens and the mugs and the pads are, are completely gone. Um, and many people said, that, you know, these things don't cost a lot. It's not that big of a deal. But I think for, for the patient who's coming in, they're, they're seeing that kind of constant reminder of a, of a pharmaceutical company um, coming in and, and, you know, we had decided that, um, you know, it, the, the perception was, was bad and that we needed to change behavior there. So that was one of the big changes. You know, um, I, I think that alone is a very interesting issue. Um, I remember um, talking to a pharmacy benefit manager, and he pulled mm-hmm. me aside after I, I, I spoke to them about, you know, how to take care of psoriasis and what drugs to cover and all. And he says to me, Steve, you know, you're one of these good docs, but... There are doctors out there, and the drug companies are bringing them donuts every day, and these doctors are prescribing these biologics because they don't want these free donuts to end. And I'm scratching <laughs> my head thinking, this guy just doesn't understand. I mean, the perception may be bad, but I right. really don't think there are any doctors who are prescribing the drug because they're getting donuts or because they're getting 
you know, these 25-cent pens. Um, you know, the pen might be a reminder of a drug that may benefit a patient. Maybe, you know, those kind of reminders may not be all bad, but I agree with you. In a world where the patients are, you know, questioning things, having it, having doctors look like, what is it, NASCAR drivers, you know, in their yeah. jackets, you know, probably is not a good thing. Now, and I, I think, too, and, and you made a, a very good point that, you know, we know from research that we've done that when physicians are making a decision on how they're prescribing medicine, they're relying on a lot of things. They're looking at clinical guidelines. They're talking to their peers. They're looking at the peer-reviewed journals. Um, they're, you know, attending CME classes, lots of different things, and, and including getting information from pharmaceutical companies. But often the untold story, I think, is, is the fact that insurance companies certainly play a significant role in determining how certain drugs get used. Um, we know now that the, the many tiers that exist on patients' formularies make certain drugs almost financially out of reach because they're put on such a high tier with high cost-sharing that oftentimes, you know, if, if a patient's given a choice between a $4 generic or trying a new drug that may cost them $50 out of pocket, you know, patients tend to go for the cheaper drug anyway. So despite the fact that companies do come and, and, and provide information to doctors, there's still so many other factors that doctors are taking into consideration when deciding how to prescribe a medicine that, you know, it's, it's a factor, but it's often singled out as the only factor, and I think that's, that's probably not, not accurate. So what else happened with the, the 2008 guidelines? Sure. Um, we had a number of provisions. For example, another one re- related, you mentioned meals previously. Um, you know, oftentimes uh, not only would sales reps bring meals into the doctor's offices, but they would often have uh, meals accompanying informational presentations in, in different settings. So, for example, at a, at a restaurant where they would bring physicians in and, and serve a nice meal and wine and that kind of thing. Um, in the new code, we essentially said that meals provided had to be limited to the office, that no longer could you take out physicians you know, to a nice restaurant, have some wine, that kind of thing, and do these kinds of presentations, that it was only going to be appropriate either in the physician's office or in a hospital setting in connection with some sort of presentation. So no longer could you really drop the, drop the meal and, and, and leave. It had to be connected to some sort of informational presentation, and it had to be done in the doctor's office, not in, not in these other settings. So basically you can't give the free gift of a meal, but in the appropriate setting, if you're having an informational program, it's reasonable to provide a meal uh, that's the only way the doctor's going to find the right. time to participate anyway. Right. Well, and, and, and that's it. I mean, we also had a number of, of um, different provisions related to speaking um, uh, agreements, speaking arrangements that um, physicians often entered into with companies. And, you know, a lot of that, a lot of the revisions in the code had to do with, you know, more appropriate disclosure. So, for example, um, you know, any healthcare professional who's a member of a committee that is setting formularies for a pharmacy benefit manager or helping develop practice guidelines maybe for their, uh, the society that they belong to, if that person also speaks or consults for a company, that they need to disclose that to the committee um, that they're, you know, either the formulary committee or the um, practice guideline committee and the nature of the relationship with, with the company. So more transparency also is a big part of the code and making sure that you know, if you're getting paid to, to speak on behalf of the company or about the drug 
and you also are wearing another hat where you may have uh, influence on how a formulary is set or that kind of thing, that that kind of relationship needs to be open and transparent. I think that's reasonable. I hear there's other other transparency issues that are coming to fore um, uh, where drug companies are making public how much money they're giving to doctors who speak or consult. Is that part of the pharma guidelines? Well, um, not necessarily. There have been, um, as you probably know, many states have been kind of at the forefront of, you know, what they call kind of sunshine or disclosure bills, which are requiring companies to disclose. I think Vermont was one of the first ones to do this how much money they may give to certain physicians in terms of, uh, you know, compensation for speaking at an event, that kind of thing. Certain uh, portions of, of those bills or types of those bills were actually adopted as part of the health care reform bill, um, kind of a Sunshine Act that um, it, it phases in over a period of time, but it, it will basically allow a lot more transparency for individuals that want to go on a website and find out how much money is my doctor taking and from whom, um, if people want that kind of information to ensure that, you know, they're getting um, uh, or having a doctor that, that they know, you know, where the, where their interests may lie and how much money they may be getting from a, from a, any given company. So I think there, there's been a big push, as you said, um, you know, not just within the industry, but, but also from government as well to create a more transparent system. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. We're speaking today with Lori Riley, Vice President for Policy and Research at Pharma, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. I heard a presentation not long ago that was speaking to this issue of of doctors and taking money from pharmaceutical companies and what patients think. And and based on the survey, it sounded like the, um, most patients thought, well, if the doctor was taking, you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars a year from drug companies, that that's probably a sign that this doctor knows what they're doing, that they're 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 uh, up on things, that the pharmaceutical company wants their opinion, that this is probably the kind of doctor you'd want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but that if the doctor were taking well, a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars a year, well, then maybe there might be some question. <laughs> may may cross the line on. at some point. Yeah. Well, and I think in part, you know, when we talked earlier about um, the transparency and disclosure, I think in in part it, it probably gets at just that. You know, there may be when this information isn't public, uh, doctors, you know, are maybe more willing to take more. When it suddenly becomes public, they may be more cognizant of how much they're taking. I think you know the unfortunate part is the fact that people don't understand always the the importance of the interactions between physicians and pharmaceutical sales reps and how that can actually benefit patient care um, through the exchange of information. I think oftentimes companies learn a lot about how a particular medicine is working, you know, what's good about it, what are the doctors hearing not so good about it. And as they go back and, and relay that information to their researchers and scientists and the companies, they can often improve upon that drug in the future knowing how it actually works in practice as, as, you know, the drug is used in a wider population. I have the sense that the FDA limits the back-and-forth communications of those sorts that one might think could be happening yeah. on a regular basis. For example, if some uh-huh. doctors notice, oh, you know, this drug has benefit for my patients with this and communicates to the company, people might think, well, then the company probably should tell other doctors about this, and that's just 
totally off limits. That's right. I, you know, you, you mentioned a point, and, and we hear a lot about this, the whole idea of, of off-label use of drugs, which for many um, types of care, cancer is a great example of, of a field of care where patients are often treated with a medication that the label hasn't specified yet is, is applicable for treatment. And often that's because, you know, cancer doctors may have a limited supply of drugs they can use. And, and for a patient whose life is, is hanging in the balance, they may be more willing to take a risk on a drug where it, it they may have heard that, hey, a, a colleague had luck with this type of drug in a certain patient. But pharmaceutical companies are completely barred from uh, promoting uh, their drugs for an off-label use. They're strictly limited to talk about a drug in terms of what has been approved by the Food and Drug Administration and what's actually on that drug's label. You talk about so label. You, Let's make sure our audience mm-hmm. knows sure. what the label refers to. Sure. The, the label is something that, that the Food and Drug Administration approves, and it basically uh, provides information on how to use the drug, um, what side effects um, may be um, present in the drug and, and the studies that have been done in it. Uh, they describe some of the clinical trials that have to take place in order to get a drug approved to market. So it essentially gives the, the story of, of how the drug is approved and how it should be used for what conditions. Um, have, has the drug been studied in, and what side effects uh, the drug might have for, for someone that uses it. Well, uh, Lori, thank you so much for clarifying that. You mentioned the um, health care reform, and one of the things I think people are very interested in now, I know I am, is how health care reform is going to affect the development of new medications. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, that's a, a good question and one, um, you know, that, that needs to be seen, I think, over time. Um, pharma was in support of health care reform primarily because we, we thought it was important for people, all people, to have access to medical care and obviously prescription drugs being a key part of medical care today. Um, I think, you know, some of the, the key issues that we're often concerned about when it comes to ensuring that drugs are developed well into the future have a lot to do with um, protecting our intellectual property. So, um, you know, ensuring that uh, when we develop a drug that there's actually a period of time where a company can recoup that investment. Um, there were important provisions in the legislation that had to do with, uh, you mentioned earlier, biologics. So, um Today, biologic drugs, which are used to treat a lot of different conditions, cancer drugs, uh, um, you mentioned some of the dermatologic products now being biologics. These drugs, um, today, there wasn't a pathway for a generic biologic to get onto the market. Tell tell us, what is is a biologic? How does that differ from those, you know, simvastatin generic pills I'm taking? Sure. Well, a... a, um, Traditional pharmaceutical product, we often call them small molecule products, are made, you know, in the lab, often a chemical type combination. Biologic, um, uh, probably the best way to describe it, more of a naturally occurring type product. Um, proteins and, and, and other things that oftentimes the companies that, that develop these products are often more expensive to develop. They often treat a smaller population um, of individuals. Um, but but very important because we've seen tremendous advances with a lot of the biologics on the market today, particularly for cancer care therapies. Um, but as a result of them often being more expensive and treating a smaller population, 
um, the they 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 do differ from traditional pharmaceuticals in such a way that the FDA did not have a way to get a generic version of those onto the market. There wasn't a legal pathway or a regulatory pathway, kind of the guidebook for the FDA in terms of how to get that drug onto the market. Um, and this bill changed that. So the the good news for for listeners and, and patients out there is. We now have an avenue um, for generics down the road to generic biologics to get onto the market. And for patients today that are that are paying a higher cost of, for a biologic, you know, in the future there is there is a light ahead in terms of the ability for companies um, and oftentimes innovator companies too, not necessarily just the traditional generic companies, will be trying to get on the market and producing uh, lower cost biologics for patients. And that's going to limit innovation, or is that? Uh... Well, I'm, you know, I, I, I hope not. I think that the positive news is um, a lot of the innovator companies, so the, the brand name pharmaceutical industry that, that traditionally doesn't produce generics or are actually interest, interested in producing um, follow on biologics. So I actually think we're going to see a fair amount of innovation um, coming, you know, from the so-called uh, follow-on biologics. We don't call them generic biologics, but they're, they're follow-on biologics. Um, but, I, you know, I think there's, there's probably other pieces of legislation that, that we're looking at in the coming years that, that will have even more to do with how innovation, um, you know, happens. Uh, we have a, the Prescription Drug User Fee Act, which people, most people are probably not aware of, but the industry today is required to, to provide funding to the Food and Drug Administration to ensure um, timely review of its products at the agency. Uh, over time, the agency has been significantly understaffed and underfunded and has relied on the contribution of industry to help make up the difference from, from the amount of money that they're given from the, the government. And this is a, a very important pro, uh, program because before it was enacted, patients in the U.S. often waited 30-plus mm, 30, months for a drug to be reviewed at the FDA, and that, that time period has gone down significantly. Um, more than half, and we want to sure, ensure that, that that continues to stay there because the, the thing that's most important to patients waiting for a drug is getting that drug out of the FDA and into the hands of their doctor and eventually them to be able to use it. I think we probably have a whole other show where we could talk about <laughs> the relationship yes, that with is the a, FDA that's and whole drug safety. Yeah. All right. Well, um, at this point in the show, we, we, we like to give our audience specific suggestions for things they can do to get better health care, to have a better health care system. Are there any thoughts you want to share with us? Um, sure. I mean, you know, one of the things that we've focused on pretty significantly um, throughout the past few years is you know, focusing on ensuring that people that actually need drugs can actually get the drugs that they need. Uh, we know for a lot of conditions there are treatments that are there and available, and, and for a variety of reasons people aren't accessing them. Either they can't afford them, um, they're not using them even though they've been prescribed them, um, and so there are some, you know, new provisions in the health care reform bill that passed that hopefully will incentivize patients to, to take their drugs if they need them. Um, and, and our industry has continued um, for those patients that can't afford them, which is obviously in, in this day and age a huge issue for many people, to have patient assistance programs for people who um, either don't have insurance or have very limited insurance. What's, um, what's the best the, way to access those? 
Um, there's two probably very easy ways. The, the Internet is one. Um, the Partnership for Prescription Assistance has a website um, that people can access. It's www.ppa.rx.net. And if you go to that website, um, you can find out all there is to know about the patient assistance programs. Wonderful. Um, and there's also um, a 1-888 number people can call, and I can give that to folks now. It's 1-888, the number 4, PPA now. And people can call and find out whether they may be eligible for um, help with their medicine. Um, just in the past five years alone, we've helped over 6.5 million people get access to wow. Uh, more than 2,500 different medicines. 2,500 so. different medicines. Yes. Wow, that's impressive. I did, had no idea there's that many medicines out there. <laughs> there are a lot of medicines. And the, the nice wow. thing about the website and, and the program is that we've pulled together not just patient assistance programs that our companies offer, although those are the majority of them, but also there are oftentimes where people call up and they may not know that they're eligible for a program like Medicare or Medicaid. So we can put people in touch with whatever programs may be the best for them because, again, people oftentimes, you know, there's millions of people that today are eligible for Medicaid that don't know it and aren't utilizing um, that as a mechanism to get their health care. And so this is a good way to find out what you may be eligible for. That's outstanding. Uh, were there any other key things you wanted to raise? Um, I, I think, you know, again, it's it's just ensuring that people are having good conversations um, you know, with their with their healthcare professional and asking them how they can, um, you know, improve their lifestyle. We know obesity is a great example of a, a disease that's causing a lot of other healthcare costs uh, in terms of diabetes and hypertension, high cholesterol, and the like. When one and of your member companies comes out with a pill to solve that <laughs> problem, they're going to be doing very well. I think that's right. When you look at new medicines they're looking at, that's definitely high on the list. I'm I will sure tell you is. that. Well, Lori Riley, Vice President for Policy Research at Pharma, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. For all the negative attention the drug companies get, I think we should be counting our blessings. The new drugs we get are truly miraculous, and the rate at which it, we're getting new drugs is truly amazing. You think... In the history of mankind, the thousands of years of recorded history, we got our first real drug only about 70 years ago in penicillin. It rocked. And then cortisone medicines to help inflammatory diseases. That came maybe 50, 60 years ago. In the last 20 years, just in the last 20 years, we've seen enormous developments. I mean, I can remember 25 years ago when we were first hearing about AIDS and HIV infection, and we already have drugs that control the disease. It's, it's truly amazing what, our, what the incentives in our economy, along with the efforts of people at drug companies, have done. I, th I can remember back in 1980 thinking, wow, medicine is great. You know, we're able to take care of people. We have all these modern miracle drugs. Today, I wouldn't be at all satisfied um, just being able to use the treatments that I had available uh, those 20, 30 years ago. And I suspect as happy as I am now with all the great treatments that we have, uh, 20 years from now, I would look back and say, gosh, we hardly had anything uh, back in, in the Stone Ages of 2010. 
in addition to these great miracle drugs, medicines go generic, and we have all these low-cost medications. All those great drugs that I was using in the 1980s, they're all generic now. Um, and so we can give people what was a great level of care in 1980 uh, for extremely low cost today. And a lot of those drugs are still quite valuable. We live in many ways in the best of both worlds. We doctors, we can prescribe patients low cost treatments for a lot of their ailments. And we have those more expensive but truly modern miracles when we need them. Now, we also have to have doctors uh, that we can trust. And I think there's there's some issues related to how doctors work with pharmaceutical companies. Some of it, I think, is a perception issue. Uh, some of it, well, there is potential for real conflict of interest. Uh, we'll be exploring that, potentials for conflict of interest between um, uh, doctors and um, the potential outside financial influences on them um, on an upcoming show. Well, that's it for today. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. I want to thank you for joining us. And until next time, I wish you a healthy week. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.